Matthew 16. Verses 13 through 20. These scripture texts are in connection with Lord's Day 31, which deals with the matter of church discipline or the keys of the kingdom. We've read this text actually already a couple of times in connection with the identity of Christ, where Peter makes the confession that you are the Christ. But now we see it also speaks very much to our task as a church. So Matthew 16, verses 13 through 20. Now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, He asked His disciples, Who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, Some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. He said to them, But who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one, that he was the Christ. Let's turn also a page forward to Matthew 18, verses 15 through 20. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven." Again, I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I among them. So far, the word of the Lord. Let's sing as we think about what we've read. Let's sing from Psalm 81, stanzas 7, 11, and 12. Worship the Lord every Sunday afternoon. We turn to the Heidelberg Catechism as a summary of the Christian faith. And we find ourselves this week in Lord's Day 31. That's on page 546 of your books of praise. There the question is, what are the keys of the kingdom of heaven? The preaching of the Holy Gospel and church discipline. By these two, the kingdom of heaven is opened to believers and closed to unbelievers. How is the kingdom of heaven opened and closed by the preaching of the gospel? 
According to the command of Christ, the kingdom of heaven is opened when it is proclaimed and publicly testified to each and every believer that God has really forgiven all their sins for the sake of Christ's merits, as often as they, by true faith, accept the promises of the gospel. The kingdom of heaven is closed when it is proclaimed and testified to all unbelievers and hypocrites that the wrath of God and eternal condemnation rest on them as long as they do not repent. According to this testimony of the gospel, God will judge both in this life and in the life to come. How is the kingdom of heaven closed and opened by church discipline? According to the command of Christ, people who call themselves Christians but show themselves to be unchristian in doctrine or life are first repeatedly admonished in a brotherly manner. If they do not give up their errors or wickedness, they are reported to the church, that is, to the elders. If they do not heed also their admonitions, they are forbidden the use of the sacraments and they are excluded by the elders from the Christian congregation and by God himself from the kingdom of Christ. They are again received as members of Christ and of the church when they promise and show real amendment. So far, the Lord's Day. Brothers and sisters in our Lord Jesus Christ, in the Belgic Confession... We say that the Christian church can be recognized by three marks. The pure preaching of the gospel, the pure administration of the sacraments, and the exercise of church discipline. Church discipline is probably the the most neglected responsibility of the modern church. That's true of Protestant churches. It's uh, even more true of, of evangelical churches, and it's certainly even more true still of Roman Catholic churches, where you can believe almost just about whatever you want and, and live almost however you want and still be received in communion as long as you go to Mass once a year. Well, what we see from Matthew 16 and 18 is that this is a command and a responsibility that's given to the Christian church. And failing to do it amounts to disobedience. In in fact, a church that refuses to exercise church discipline cannot even properly be called a church. Let's take a look at the two passages that we read. We, as I mentioned earlier, we looked at Matthew 16 uh, a few uh, months ago when we looked at the, the identity of Christ and the names of Christ. Uh, there we looked at Peter's words where he confessed, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And, and the Lord Jesus responded to him, and this is what we want to pay attention to today. He said, Yes, and I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, And the gates of Hades, he uses the word Hades, not hell as it's in in our Bibles. The gates of Hades shall not overcome it. I will give you the the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Well, there's a few questions that we want to ask about that statement. First, what is this kingdom of heaven? that the Lord Jesus is speaking about. What does Christ mean by that phrase? Christ actually spoke a lot about the kingdom of heaven. In fact, it's, 
It's the big theme of Christ's entire preaching ministry. If you look at Matthew 4, uh, verse 17, that picks up right after Jesus' baptism. And that's the introduction to his preaching ministry. And it says there, From that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Well, what is this kingdom of heaven? The kingdom of heaven refers to the whole new world and the new world order that Christ came to build. Even though it's called the kingdom of heaven, it is called that because it comes from heaven, and yet it's still understood to be a very earthly reality in the sense that it exists here on earth. The kingdom of heaven doesn't exist up there. The kingdom of heaven has come from there and exists here on earth. Christ is transforming our lives, transforming human culture, human politics, uh, human art, human business, every aspect of our lives. That's all part of the kingdom of heaven. That new world order, if you want to call it that, it begins in the age of the church. In other words, already now, and the expectation that Scripture teaches is that the kingdom of heaven will grow and grow and grow until Christ returns. So in one sense, we can say we already now live in the kingdom of heaven because Christ is reigning and we are part of the church, so we're part of the kingdom that he is building We're citizens, that's another way you could speak of it, citizens of the kingdom. That's what Paul says, our citizenship is in heaven. We uh, we belong to that kingdom. But this kingdom is not yet complete. It will only ever be complete when Christ returns, when sin is finally judged and punished forever and eradicated from, from the face of the earth. And so you can talk about the kingdom of heaven as a, as a reality that already exists now and also as a reality that will exist perfectly on the day of judgment. That's what Christ is referring to when he says the kingdom of heaven. It includes the church now, but it has a view towards the final perfect kingdom. And when he speaks then about the keys of the kingdom of heaven, the question is, who will be welcomed into that final perfect kingdom? kingdom and who will be shut out the idea then when the lord jesus speaks of keys is he's presenting this idea that the kingdom of heaven has you could say gates or doors through which some people are welcomed in and made citizens and others are exiled out and their citizenship is taken away In a way, you can think about, I think I did this with the catechism students, you can think about the keys of the kingdom of heaven as passports uh, that declare whether or not you're a citizen, whether you're welcome into the country or not. Well, here's the big idea. God does not leave it up to us to decide whether or not we are part of His kingdom. Nobody gets to declare themselves a citizen of Canada and nobody gets to declare themselves a citizen of the kingdom of heaven. Instead, Christ has given that responsibility to the church. Now, the church doesn't issue physical passports, unless if you really want to extend the metaphor, you could talk about attestations being your, your passport. But the church, what the church does is the church renders judgments. That's what the Lord Jesus told Peter. Whatever you bind on earth 
will be bound in heaven. What you judge, what the church judges here on earth, that's how it will be judged in heaven. In Matthew 18, the Lord taught His disciples then about how that process of judgment ought to be made. And we read that together. And at the very end, He repeats that same phrase that He uses in Matthew 16. He says, Truly I say to you, in Matthew 18, verse 18, Whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. So he repeats that uh, statement. So the keys of the kingdom then refer to the right of the church to make judgments on behalf of Christ with respect to individual sinners and their eternal salvation. One can bestow citizenship, and one can remove citizenship from the kingdom of heaven. So you can think about it as issuing a passport or rescinding that passport. And that should be a very sobering thought for every one of us. Christ promises twice to honor the judgments of the church. Those who are excommunicated by the church are excommunicated by Christ. Christ promises as much. He will honor that judgment. Well, that then leads to the natural question, who gets to make that judgment? Who carries that right today? The Roman Catholic Church claims that this right was given exclusively by Peter, or excuse me, exclusively to Peter, and that since, as they claim, Peter ended up becoming the pastor in Rome, then the Roman church now holds that exclusive right. That's an astronomical claim. For one thing, this is very clearly a responsibility that Jesus gave, not just to Peter, but to all of his disciples. You could read Matthew 16... And you could recognize Jesus is speaking directly to Peter there. And so you could interpret that as something said to Peter. But in Matthew 18, it's very clear that Jesus is speaking to all of his disciples. And even if, even if Jesus had just given it to Peter, that would still never mean that henceforth it always belongs to Rome. It's a huge leap in in logic there. And especially if you're saying, regardless of Rome's faithfulness, Rome still gets to make that call. There was a time when when the the church in Rome was a faithful church. In fact, for centuries, the the Roman church was the the bastion of of faithful Christianity and, and also of wisdom. But it is not that way any longer. And even Roman Catholics acknowledge that there were periods in which it was not a bastion of of orthodoxy and and of good Christian living. Uh, How they can think then that they hold the right regardless of faithfulness uh, is certainly not biblical. The Lord Jesus says to one of the churches in Revelation that... uh, that if an individual church forsakes Christ, its lampstand is taken away. This is a responsibility then that's given to the whole church wherever they are gathered in Christ's name. That's what the Lord Jesus says, where two or three are gathered in my name. And and there, of course, it also refers to in in Christ's spirit. Pagans can't gather in Christ's name and and render judgments on Christ's behalf. He means where the true church is gathered in Christ's name. There, the right to judge is given to the church. 
And the church is then recognized by the Spirit of Christ. So we can see from these texts then that the keys of the kingdom refers to the power to bind and to loose, or in other words, to judge in Christ's name and with Christ's authority that Christ promise he, promises he will honor. Well, that judgment happens in, in two ways, and that's why, why the Catechism speaks of two keys to the kingdom, preaching of the gospel and church discipline. So first, the preaching of the gospel. Wherever the gospel is is preached faithfully, the church is rendering a judgment. Uh, Everyone ought to hear it very loud and clear. There's only one way to the living God, and that's through Jesus Christ. Everyone, you, me, every human being on earth, must turn from sin and turn to Christ. That gospel must be proclaimed in this church and in every Christian church. As Paul says to the pagan Greeks in Athens, he says, The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now He commands all people everywhere to repent, because He has fixed a day in which He will judge the world in righteousness by the man He has appointed, namely Jesus Christ. And of this He has given assurance to all, by raising Him from the dead. That's the gospel message. God sent Jesus Christ to pay the penalty for your sins. He died, He rose from the dead, showing that He was who He claimed to be, and therefore, you, me, and everyone must repent. That's why the gospel should be heard every single time we gather together. We need to hear it over and over. The wrath of God stands on us if we do not repent and find our life in Christ. And that, that means in the first place then turning from sin, recognizing how it's evil in God's sight. And it also means giving our whole lives to Christ, letting Him rule in us and through us. It means praying to God for forgiveness in Christ's name. It means believing that Christ has paid the price for our sins. And it means submitting to Christ as the Lord of our lives. That's the gospel that needs to be heard. And through that preaching, every believer is told, you are welcome into the kingdom of heaven. And every unbeliever is told, you will be excluded. That's the preaching of the gospel and both Sides of that must be heard loud and clear. So the first key then is is simply the preaching of the gospel. But we can see from Matthew 18 especially that the, the binding and loosing that Jesus refers to here, it involves more than simply preaching the gospel Because the kingdom of God is not just this this invisible spiritual reality, and nor is the church. Christ is building His church, and you can find it. You can see it here on the earth, and you can see who belongs to it and who doesn't. And here, I should say something briefly about uh, Christians today that that think that church membership is is just optional. Maybe some of you have friends like this. I I certainly have met people like this. Uh, There are Christians today who claim that, you know, the Bible never actually teaches explicitly about church membership because the ancient church was just this informal gathering of believers. It doesn't say you have to be a, a formal member. Well, that's that teaching is simply wrong. 
the process of discipline that's outlined here in, in Matthew 18 clearly assumes such a thing as church membership. Uh, it uses categories that belong to the synagogue. Uh, and there were people that were members of the synagogue and people that were excluded from the synagogue. And the same is true for the literally dozens of commands that you find in the New Testament that say, submit to your leaders, obey your leaders, or to the leaders, shepherd those that are under you. And let me ask you then, how are you supposed to obey your leaders if you're not a member of the church, if you don't know who your leaders are? Who has authority over you if you're not a member of the church? And from their side, how are the leaders supposed to give an account to God for shepherding your soul if you're not a member of the church? You might, look at, you might think of the uh, case of discipline that we looked at uh, two weeks ago from 1 Corinthians 5, where Paul says, Let him who has done this be removed from among you. Deliver this man to Satan. Now, how is the church supposed to do that if that man wasn't first a member of the church? So the idea that church membership is not commanded is simply wrong. It's so commanded that it's simply assumed the whole way through. And you can't have discipline without membership. Really, the refusal that you find among so many Christians today, the refusal to become members of a church, really comes down to an unwillingness to be under authority. That's, that's the heart of the issue. That's what it's about, and that's what everyone knows it's about. Uh, we're free-spirited North Americans. We don't like to be under authority. We chafe at the idea that someone else gets to restrict our freedom. It's not easy, and that's true. It's not easy to be under authority. It means I, I don't get to make up the rules myself. I don't get to make Scripture say whatever I want it to say and, and justify it however I please. That's a freedom that's not easy to give up, but it is mandatory to give up that freedom. We're called to be under authority, and it's for our own good. As, as Hebrews says, they're, they're keeping watch over your souls. And so the binding and loosing then that, that the Lord Jesus speaks of here in Matthew 18 is not merely the preaching of the gospel in a general way, but also the, the clear, visible practice of church discipline. Christ promises to honor those judgments then that are made by the church, provided, of course, that it's in agreement with Scripture. It's part of what it means to be gathered in Christ's name. It's according to His Word, with His Spirit. The Lord Jesus describes how that process of discipline works in, in Matthew 18. And it's important to recognize, because we often overlook it, that that process begins with personal, private admonition. If a brother or sister sins, go and tell him his fault. Now I recognize the Lord Jesus does say there, if he sins against you, go and tell him his fault. But that obviously does not mean that if, if you see him sinning, but it's not directly against you, then, then you no longer have responsibility for your brother, that you can just ignore it when they're, when they're sinning. Hebrews 3, verse 12, says, Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God, but exhort one another every day, as long as it's called today, so that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. You have a responsibility for your brothers and sisters. 
Or Colossians 3, verse 16, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom. So admonishing and correcting are not limited only to cases where a brother sins against you. If you see a brother or sister sinning, you have a responsibility to admonish them. And so, brothers and sisters, hear me clearly on this point then. If you see or hear of a brother or sister falling into sin, it is your responsibility given to you from Christ to go and speak to your brother or sister. you, you have no right, because what, what usually happens when, when, we see it, when we see a brother or sister falling into sin, what normally happens, probably 90% of the time, what happens is we gossip about it, or we throw up our hands and say, what is the church coming to? You have no right to do that. You have every responsibility to go and speak to your brother or sister. Nor do you even have a right yet to bring it before the elders. That right, that day may come but it comes only after having spoken with them privately. Now that's hard. Of course that's hard. It takes courage. And even more, it takes love. And in all likelihood, it takes love for someone you don't necessarily like. But you must go and speak to them. Christ Himself holds each of us to account for that uh, if we hear our brother or, of our brothers or sisters being in sin. So that's the first step. Go and speak to them. If they repent, obviously that's more than just saying sorry. It means genuine sorrow, measurable change. If they repent, the matter is over. That's the first step of discipline. Nor does anyone have a right then to, to, to walk away from the church. You see this. Someone leaves the church and says, yeah, I left that church because they're full of sinners. You ask them, well, did you talk to them? No, I didn't. And you say, yeah, I can see that they're full of sinners, and you're one of them. Now, they're not just in sin. You're in sin as well. We're commanded to speak to our brothers and sisters. Now, if they do not want to hear you, or if they repent and then go on sinning, then Christ says, bring two or three witnesses, and you can go and speak to them again. Now, that doesn't have to mean witnesses to the original sin. Uh, There often simply weren't witnesses there to the original sin. But you can bring along witnesses to hear the person's response to your charge. Uh, If they acknowledge their sin but still refuse to, or if they acknowledge what they did but refuse to repent of it or to recognize it as sin, then you do have two or three witnesses to them being in sin. And we, want, we have to remember, at this stage too, the goal is the, the brother's repentance. The purpose is out of love. Love for the sinner and love for the honor of Christ. It should never be a goal of, of personal pride. Like, I'm going to bring witnesses to, to prove that I was right and, and you're wrong. No, the goal is to rescue and to restore a, a lost brother or sinner. Finally, if the brother or sister does not want to hear the witnesses or the admonitions and refuses to acknowledge the sin, then, and only then, Christ commands us to bring this before the elders of the church. And then the elders of the church have to judge in the matter. If the person refuses to repent, they are to be excommunicated, to be removed from the church and treated as a Gentile and a tax collector. That's the words that 
the Lord Jesus uses. And, and again, it's important to recognize Christ promises that when that process is honored, that Christ will also honor the judgment of the church. Those then who are excommunicated are indeed lost unless they repent. They are on the road to hell. They will not be saved unless they repent. Christ promises to honor that judgment from the church. Now, when Christ says in Matthew 18, you are to treat him as a Gentile and a tax collector, it's good to recognize that doesn't mean shunning the person. We're not like the Mennonites who who shun uh, those whom they excommunicate, nor does it even mean excluding him him or her from, from family gatherings. Christ himself didn't shun or exclude the tax collectors and, and the Gentiles. Instead, he, he associated with them in the sense of, of sitting with them, eating with them, building friendships with them, uh, and building relationships with them for the purpose of preaching the gospel to them. Now, it's true that there are texts that, that give a stronger warning. Take 1 Corinthians Uh, 5, verse 11, he says, Now I write to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he's guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler. Not even, he says, to eat with such a one. What that's talking about there is those who claim to be true believers while they are living in sin. And what that's saying is don't let them get away with that kind of claim. Don't treat them like all is well. uh, When it speaks of eating with them, it's referring to an eating of fellowship. There's a context there in in that chapter. Jesus himself ate with tax collectors and with prostitutes, but not in the context of the church. It was not an eating that says, all is well between you and me, and and Christ isn't demanding anything of you. It was an eating in order to build a relationship to bring them the gospel. So we can go wrong with this by, by going to either extreme. On the one hand, we can shun a person who's excommunicated, but that would be going too far. We don't shun tax collectors or Gentiles either. We share the gospel with them. We invite them into our homes. We speak into their lives. On the other hand, we can also go wrong by acting and pretending as if all is normal, as if nothing has changed. Uh, And so, other than the Lord's Supper, they're they're welcomed into all the different church activities. They're treated like a, a member of the church at family gatherings. Nothing has changed. That too is is the wrong way to to approach this. They are under the wrath of God. They are destined to perish in hell forever unless they repent. So it's unloving and immoral to act as if all is well and nothing has changed. Now, of course, there is a time and a place for, for the, the, the spiritual and eternal uh, conversations. It doesn't have to be at every encounter. The Lord Jesus himself certainly didn't only speak about that every time he, he sat with tax collectors and, and prostitutes. There's, there's room for building relationships. But, but the goal and the focus of all of our interactions must always be the repentance of the brother or sister. In our whole relationship with them, that's what it must be aimed towards. 
And that's what Christ means then by, by saying you are to treat them as a tax collector and a, a Gentile. It's not to shun, nor is it to pretend that all is well, but to recognize they are no longer in the kingdom of heaven. Let me close by, by just giving a few applications of these truths. First, Christ's words mean that we are to take church discipline very, very seriously. Church membership may not be a guarantee that you are saved, but excommunication by a faithful church is a guarantee that you will not be saved unless you repent. That's, that's what it means when he says, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Church membership is not a guarantee you'll be saved, but church excommunication, when the church is faithful and acting in accordance with the word of God, is a guarantee that you will not be saved unless you repent and turn to Christ. So no theology of some sort of invisible church of which you can still be a member after you've been excommunicated will do any good on the day of judgment. Christ made his position very clear. Reject my church and I will reject you. Second, let's remember our personal responsibility for addressing the sin that we see. Let's be honest, brothers and sisters, the Canadian Reformed Church does have a reputation for licentiousness and and drunkenness. Licentiousness means uh, living as if you have a license to do whatever you want. And we can argue until we're blue in the face about whether or not we deserve that kind of reputation. But it's there. It's, It's undeniably there. Now, perhaps sometimes it's there because the elders have been cowardly and have not dealt with sin uh, in the church. But more often than not, it's there because individual members who know exactly what's going on don't love their brothers or sisters enough to go to them and speak about their sin. That's where the process of church discipline begins. And that first step is where it's most often already forgotten and overlooked. No one gets to accuse the elders of not doing their jobs until they first have done their job and gone and spoken with their brother or sister. And so if you know a brother or sister who's living in sin, you must go and speak to them. We will each have to give an account to Christ for this. If they don't repent, bring along witnesses. If they still don't repent, then do bring it before the elders. But shame on us if we are willing to let the name of Christ be dragged through the mud because of the licentiousness that would exist within our church. Few things bring dishonor to the name of Christ like churches that allow, that permit hypocrisy and absolute worldliness to just go on unchecked whose young people and plenty of not-so-young people get drunk on the weekends and then show up in a suit and tie on Sunday. If we have a reputation for that, and I pray that we don't, but I've often heard it, uh, if we have a reputation for that, then let us do all that we can to purge the evil from our midst. I know from my own experience as a young person that that reputation is at least partly deserved. And we can all acknowledge that we've all shared in, in some of the responsibility for that. But we cannot ever simply say, you know, boys will be boys. They'll, they'll grow out of it. Uh, and we especially shouldn't say that when those boys are 15, 16, 18, or even 25 years old. And, of course, the same is true of, uh, of the young women. 
we all have a responsibility to look out first and foremost for the honor of the name of Christ and what the name of Christ, how the name of Christ is reflected in our church. This, by the way, is also the reason that, that uh, Reformed churches have, have always recognized that there are certain public sins that require a public confession uh, um, and, and that require an immediate suspension also from the Lord's Supper. If there's a public sin where police are involved or it's in the papers or on TV and some, a sin of some public nature, the church ought to make it immediately clear that this is not tolerated within the Christian church. Uh, and so the, the Reformed churches have always had that policy and it's in our church order even, even now. The purpose of this is, is so that the name of Christ in the very first and foremost place, would not be dishonored because of what might happen within our church. So that everyone, both within the church and those outside the church, would know that sin will not be ignored or overlooked or justified within this church. And of course, that that policy extends to other functions as well, like young people's groups. If someone is under discipline, they do not belong at a young people's retreat or, or some other special function. So if God in his providence then has put you in a position where you know of sin that is happening, then it is your responsibility to take that first step to go and speak to them and to do that for the first, in the first place, for the sake of the name of Christ. If you love Christ's name, you will not let it be dragged through the mud. And that brings us then to, to the purposes of church discipline very briefly. And the first and foremost reason is for the name of Christ. It's, uh, as, as Isaiah declared to the people of Israel, the name of God is blasphemed all day because of you. That ought not to be the case in our church. Secondly, its purpose is uh, so that the brother or sister who is put to shame by excommunication would ultimately be brought to repentance. It's out of love for the brother or sister. And thirdly, it's so that the person's sin would not corrupt the entire church. Now, of course, we're already all sinners. It's not pretending that uh, we're keeping the church holy in the sense of no sinners are allowed within the church. Uh, that's obviously not the case. Otherwise, none of us would be here. But it is saying that, that uh, unrestrained sin and unrepented of immorality will ultimately corrupt and destroy the entire church. That's why when Paul uh, told the Corinthians to excommunicate the man we saw two weeks ago who was sleeping with his stepmother, he warned them, do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? So the purpose of, uh, that purpose of church discipline then is to preserve the existence of a holy church. So brothers and sisters, that let us then receive Christ's words here with a sober spirit. You elders, Use the keys of the kingdom as Christ has commanded you to use them for the sake, ultimately, of his most worthy name. And you brothers and sisters, receive their admonition if they should admonish you. Humble yourselves under them. Recognize the the great and, and the weighty task that they have of shepherding over your souls and having to give an account for that. 
And let, it, let each of us do our part. As God gives us that responsibility, according to the circumstances in which He places us, to correct one another, to admonish each other, and also to listen to each other's corrections and admonitions. It's for our good and really for our salvation that God has placed us together in the Christian community. Let us hold then in very, very high esteem the name that He has given us, the name Christian that He allows us to wear, and let us, as we wear it, protect His honor and reputation. Amen. Let's respond by singing from Psalm 101, stanzas 1 through 6.